You're listening to an Anazal Ministries podcast. What happens when Norman Bates comes back home? We're going to discover that today on Systematic Ecology. We are the Priest of the Geeks for our final drive-in episode of October, our final spooky movie of the month. And I can think of no one better to join me with this to my fellow horror head, Joe Day. How's it going, Joe? What's up, everybody? And before we get started, it is of the utmost importance to say, what's up, you geeks? I miss you guys. I'm glad to be here for (laughs) spooky season um, to be able to talk about. uh, So so early hot take. Okay, I'm I'm excited to talk about what is quite possibly the single most underrated sequel in horror movies. Hot take. I kind of agree. Yeah. We'll get there. But like, what are we discussing today, listeners? Well, if you didn't look at the description, we're doing Psycho 2. Now, uh, something, a monumental task to make a sequel to one of the pinnacles of film history. Like you have people studying all over the years, like praise, even people who don't like horror or thrillers will say they watch Psycho and they enjoy it more than likely. So Joe... Uh, it is what 1983, I think, when this releases. We just left the drive-in, like uh, for the first time. What are your first thoughts over your first reactions? So, I have I have never seen a character actor like Anthony Perkins a before in general, but b be able to meld the worlds of sympathetic victim and psychotic killer Mm. all all together simultaneously yeah this is not he is not michael myers he's not jason voorhees uh he's not uh goodness gracious texas chainsaw massacre leatherface he this is someone dealing with immense mental trauma and there is hope in this movie that there may be a way he can get past some of it yeah, only do for it to be snatched away. And we'll get to that in a moment. Yeah, I completely agree. Like my, my initial reaction, like this is one of those films when I first saw it, I was like, oh, it's going to be a sequel. So it's either going to be really good or really bad or just kind of made for the money. This one feels very true to the characterization of the, the original film uh, with, you know, the Norman's psyche being all over the place and like trying to be better in a town that doesn't like him for very obvious and good reasons. And people wanting revenge for very obvious and good reasons, but then using that revenge poorly. Like, I, I'm in love with this film. And I rewatched it last night uh, and got to say, all for it. Yeah. So go ahead. So um, I was reminded of this movie uh, a couple of years ago. My wife and I. So I saw this when I was a kid. Originally, I saw I watched through the whole the whole Psycho series. But um, my wife and I were going through for our 31 and 31 that year, we were doing the classics. And so we watched um, Psycho 1 and then she saw that there were sequels and she's like, why don't we go through the sequels? I'm like, OK, cool. And and she fell in love with this movie that <laughs> that this this movie was was one that really stuck out to her. And I was reminded of just how brilliant this movie is and i too watched it again last night and you know 
I I am a big fan of at this point when when you are going through the cinematic experience and you are sitting back and watching these movies from yesteryear, you can see how these beats influenced movies to come after them. And you take a movie like Psycho. Psycho it it created so much for the horror movie genre. And famously, Anthony Perkins didn't want anything to do with the franchise afterwards because he didn't want to be typecasted. He he was on, he was introductory to be like Hollywood's leading man sort of thing, and he wanted mm-hmm. to do like more more serious roles and things like that. <laughs> and so, like a a good chunk of time passed between this movie between the first movie and this movie, and. You ask yourself this this tentpole movie of Psycho, how do you follow that up? Well, by diving exactly into the character portion of it, and that is exactly what this movie and its actors do so brilliantly. Oh, very much so. Now, when it comes to this movie, you've gone over a little bit. Like, what what is your relationship with like Psycho as a franchise? You mentioned you saw this as a, a kid. Yeah. So I was I was introduced pretty early on to Hitchcock and um, we had uh, old recordings of Alfred Hitchcock presents. And so mm-hmm. I would see the those and then um, growing up a horror fan, uh, I would see a lot of his movies in the horror section uh, of the local uh, video rental store. And so I rented the first one I saw was like, yeah, I saw psycho first and then I saw the birds. Yeah. Okay. And, and so um, those were kind of foundational for me in a lot of regards. And, and the, that was, I didn't have the lyrics for it then, but what I appreciated about them was the fact that they told a story more than just um, kills per minute. You know what I mean? Because yeah. that these movies are tame in comparison to today's standards. But back in the day, these were controversial. These really pushed the envelope in a lot of regards. Yeah, very much so. Me, I, I first saw Psycho when I was in high school. That was when I was starting – to get to that point of, okay, I've got to like mature a little bit. I've got to be able to watch things that people consider to be scary. Cause I've shared before. I'm not really, when I was younger, I was very much a little weenie. I couldn't take anything. I didn't want anything like that. So as I was starting reading horror novels, like Stephen King, and then watching movies, I actually had a film class in high school and we covered, um, no, no, we didn't cover anything. I actually watched the birds, which hot take for me. I'm, I'm not big on the birds, uh, but it's been a while since I've seen it. So maybe I, my thanks would, my thoughts will change. Who knows? But like, then I watched the rest of Hitchcock's uh, uh, stuff like Vertigo, Shadow of a Doubt, uh, and then got to Psycho. And it's like, man, this is like cinema. Yeah. In its purest form. And I love it. But what, what about Psycho 2? Like, what, what do we love? What is something we don't like about the movie? Or if there's anything at all. So, uh, Honestly, I I struggle to find aspects of this movie that I 
don't like. Um, there are some spots where like, could certain things have been flushed out a little more? Sure. You know, things like that. But this movie takes the character of Norman, who is seemingly a lost cause at the end of Psycho 1 and reintroduces him and asks the question, what happens when you bring this character back to this house? And he has these these support systems and then, you know, is introduced to um, this, this seemingly innocent waitress and all of that. And now is kind of you you start to see the systematic breakdown of his psyche. And so this this movie follow is is able to have you asking questions that later movies like Scream and stuff like that would capitalize on. And and asking questions, is he actually nuts? Is it just uh, Marion Chambers hanging up? Is it just, you know what I mean? It, is mm-hmm. it what's, what's happening with these phone calls? You know, all of that kind of stuff. And you have this, you have this twist at the end that kind of puts, but, but that's almost like a nesting doll inside of a different storyline that threads all of these these layers together that all live and die on the character work of Anthony Perkins, the character work of Meg Tilly, you know, even um, to me, I can't, I can't think of his name right off the top of my head, but the guy from NYPD blue, uh, uh, Dennis Franz, Dennis Franz, you know, there's, there's so much that, that matter that, that sits on the shoulders of, good character work that really I think because they were able to get that any of the plot contrivances that exist like yeah you could sit here and and pull it apart and say you know so Meg Tilly's character just so happened to be working at the same (laughs) and like you know oh what did they hear that they were gonna hire norman so she got a job there and like you could you could pull it apart in some layers like that but the question that you have to ask yourself is does the story and does the character work allow for you to suspend your disbelief and immerse yourself enough that you're not left asking those questions and and for me, the answer is without a doubt, yes. I highly agree. This is a tremendous – if you want to know how to do a character study of someone yeah. who after your one film you say that person is unredeemable, there is no way you can convince me that over time there is something about their character I would like, like hope for the best for them, you got to watch this movie – because when the opening scene of Norman being released after serving his 22 years in prison for being insane and the courts rendering him like competent now, you got to go, wait, no, there's that sense of he should be in prison. He should stay there. Like all those people he murdered, all these terrible things. And yet over time, that's where you start. But you see him interact with Mary in like a very almost uh, fatherly kind of way. And there's no I don't. Well, there is some sexual tension there in the film deliberately done, but 
it's still it's that's grown over time. You like you see him actually care for her as a person first, and uh, allowing a stranger into his home uh, mm-hmm. after what he suffered through, and then you get through um, was uh, Lila Loomis. Yeah. yeah, Lila Loomis and her like you feel with her like, no, I have been wrong. My sister was murdered by this man. He should never be let out of prison or a mental hospital or whatever. And so you understand, oh, well, no wonder she's so consumed by revenge. That doesn't make it right. But you you get why she's doing this to the point where she would groom Mary to do her bidding. Yeah. Uh, tremendous character study. Love this part of the film. I, I guess if there's one slight I have against it. Uh, there, there's a ton of foreshadowing that there is someone else besides the two of them in the house, which we do get the reveal that it is uh, Mrs. Spool or Miss Spool, as she will say later on. And but my my gripe would be there's not really a lot of foreshadowing that it should be her outside of like that since uh, I think there's a diner scene where they were talking about her. She she starts very nice to him, but she has that moment uh, where off screen she's talked behind his back about what he's done. So there's that, but it's fine. I can look past that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The and and I will say as far as as far as the the layers of storytelling that are happening here and the twist and all of that kind of stuff, the the people that that created these this movie took the ball from Hitchcock and continued in the spirit of a Hitchcockian story. I'll go back to, we both mentioned the birds. Mm -hmm. So the birds turned 60 this year and they just had a, um, a showing in theaters that my wife and I went to, went to go see. Um, For those of you that have never watched the birds, it is the prototypical zombie movie. Just instead (laughs) of zombies, it's birds. Pretty much. Yeah, um, I, I know that zombie movies, that conversation tends to start with Romero. And and I would argue that Romero is one of the preeminent voices in there. But uh, Hitchcock walked so that way guys like Romero could run, um, which is the case for a lot of cinematic aspects of the horror genre. But um, in in the end of The Birds, you aren't left with this happy resolved everything's okay feeling with psycho you are not left with this happy resolved everything is okay feeling you are left on a macabre note Mm -hmm. and that is what these guys took and ran forward with that we didn't have a whole buttoned up uh, story by the end of this thing because by the end of this thing the story of Norman Bates continues to be one of tragedy mm-hmm. this guy and, and and seriously chef's kiss whenever whenever there's a long stretch of time between movies and a movie works it into the plot like chef's kiss because honestly when you look at psycho and the fact that Anthony Perkins is considerably younger and the whole movie is in black and white. And then this movie, this is in color, which beautiful introduction of color, the way that they cut to the sunrise. And it's this gradual progression into the, into a colored scene 
after you had the extended repeat of the shower scene from Psycho 1, you know, reminding people like, hey, this is this is the scene. And then we gradually fade into color with the sunrise and the shot of the house. And then you see Anthony Perkins as a little more aged, weathered, all of that kind of stuff, because that stretch of time happened in the real world. And so they're they're explaining that he's been locked up for 22 years and you automatically address that elephant like this is why he's this is why he's older this is why you know and and it adds an air of legitimacy to the movie because this guy did kill people and was locked up in an asylum and so now that's that that has already been set and now we can move forward with these character beats and there was something you said there that that sparked the memory of the final scene of psycho in that, you know, wouldn't even hurt a fly. Like you, you think, oh, he's pretending to be reformed this whole time because that's established at the end of Psycho. That's his plan. So yeah. there's that dread in your mind this whole time. He's just faking. He's just faking. Is he faking? Right. Is he legitimate? Has he actually been somewhat cured or like has he learned how to repress these things? And that's one of the things the film does brilliantly because if you've seen the original film, which you really should, if you're going to watch Psycho 2. Yeah. You're going to go, when's he going to snap? When's he going to snap? Nope. Oh, there's hope for him. And then, unfortunately, at the end, there is the snap when everything just falls to pieces and he ends up back in his old ways. So I I really enjoy how they do that. You have anything else you want to say about that before we move on? Yeah, I mean, this is this is one of those stories that it's in these kinds of movies. If you are. If you are a, a horror head that is more exposed to um, characters like Michael Myers, Jason Voorhees, Ghostface, um, guys like that, where it is about the damage that they do, it's about the the kills that they uh, that that they rack up and all of that kind of stuff. You can't go that route with somebody like Norman, and so. Norman Bates has to be a character in and of himself because there is no mask. There is no mystique. There is no, you've already, you you can't really follow up Psycho 1 with allowing for mystique because that aspect of mother is not real, mother <laughs> is in his head, you've already rung that bell and so how do you follow up with that? And so I would suggest while we're sitting here espousing the virtues of Psycho 2, go through and watch 1, 2, and 3. Um, you can feel free to leave out the shot for shot remake that happened in the 90s with Vince Vaughn. Uh, when I, y'all, when I say shot for shot remake, I literally shot mean for shot, shot for remake. shot remake. It's terrible. Anyway. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, that aside, one of the things that I found fascinating, like early on in the film, Emma Spool uh, brings up like, oh, you know, I just thought it was the, the Christian thing to just forgive and forget. And yeah. obviously with reveals we get about her later on, that's not exactly true. But you know, that's a very 
huge concept I've heard like thrown around in the church before. Is this a Christian principle to forgive and forget? Has that ever been said in scripture? No. Um, so, so in, in that regard, no, um, forgiveness. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, the reality is, is that, you know, in, in the, in the era that this was made, and I would say, I would say it's, it does still continue into today. However, we have smartened up a little bit as far as mental health relation, uh, relationship health, all of those kinds of things. There is more, uh, openly available information for people to be able to share, stories and information and like, Hey, this actually isn't a, a healthy relationship tactic and all of that kind of stuff. So the whole dynamic is benefited from the modern context. However, back in this period of time, that was something that was, um, espoused from the pulpit, <laughs> but, but there's obviously a difference between espoused from the pulpit and biblically accurate, which yes. is a conversation unto itself. Um, but yeah, this idea of it being the Christian thing to do to forgive and forget is dangerous because yes, we forgive. That's, that's, uh, for as much as it is for the other thing, for as much as it is for the other person, that's also a relief for your own soul mm -hmm. to be able to forgive. However, sometimes when we are when we are navigating relationships or we're navigating people we are presented with situations or people where we we need to keep in mind what that person has done or is capable of as a matter of safety as a matter of proper navigation things like that and there is a there is a line though between Knowing, okay, this person, I need to have boundaries with this person or, oh, hey, I need to separate myself from this person or something along those lines and harboring ill will or, you know, negative thoughts or saying things like that towards that person. Absolutely. It's one of those things. It comes from a good place and that sense of wanting uh, there to be peace, wanting there to, you know, let bygones be bygones. But if we take it to that ultra extreme of forgive and forget, we're going to put ourselves in a lot of harm because there are going to be people who take advantage of that kindness, of that forgiveness to say, oh, well, the, I duped these people before. I'm going to do it again. They're just going to forgive me again. And you keep falling for that trap, thinking things are going to be different. Well, what's the definition of insanity? You know, trying something and expecting different results. Like you, you can't do that not only for yourself, but for the good of the people around you. Because if you bring out that view of forgive and forget, then they're going to practice it too. And people are going to take advantage of them. And suddenly you started this net of people who are being taken advantage of versus someone who should be like, Jesus calls us to be innocent as doves and like shrewd as serpents, I think is the verse. And that's part of being shrewd is knowing this person has hurt me. I'm not going to hold it over them that they hurt me. I'm going to legitimately forgive them. But I had this expectation in my mind, it can happen again. And I'm going to prepare myself for it. Once again, not to like ostracize them and say I'm better than them because I'm morally superior, but because I know it can happen because it's already, they've already proven they can do it. Right. 
Right. Yeah. Whether whether we like it or not, as human beings, conflict and disagreement and poor execution on a relationship leaves scars. Um, one of the challenges I'll, I'll, I'll put my, I'll put my pastoral hat on for a second and (laughs) say, as a pastor, one of the thing, one of the hardest things to establish was teaching other folks and being able to counsel other folks on navigating tumultuous relationships, because that wasn't something that I was raised with was proper, proper, like relational skills and all of that. And, um, I I don't think it's any heavily guarded secret that in the past, I haven't always handled that well. Uh And so turning around and teaching somebody else how to handle that well is has has been has been a challenging prospect when it comes to pastoral ministry that being said though um the the guidance and and leading of the holy spirit in my life has brought me to the point where yeah i still i still am human i still will have my moments of um, struggling with remembering what a person did or struggling with this idea of I have been burnt enough times that I no longer want to touch the hot thing in a relational context, but remembering the the image bearer of it all. So when you are engaging with another person, Part of what is so important to remember when you're engaging with another person, and this conversation could be taken into uh, matters of opinion, matters of politics, matters of relationship, matter. It's so many different aspects and areas of life, especially for us in the West, that the person that you are talking to, the person that you are engaging with, the person that that you are are standing across from. They too are an image bearer of God. That's what that word imago Dei means. Uh-huh. And when you are engaging with that person, you show them a, me- a measure of respect and validity because they are an image bearer. Now, unfortunately, that's the very same concept that when taken in the wrong direction leads to something like forgive and forget, stay in bad relationships, don't separate yourself from anybody, even if they are toxic, all of that kind of stuff. All all of those bad relational things that are taught from the church because this is man's version of trying to navigate relational context and all of that kind of stuff and, and instituting the rules and structure of relationship that are ultimately, they may, they may be based on, it's kind of like based on a true story. They may be based on the Bible, but they're taken from the Bible and put into a man-made context to the point where they're not actually scriptural. They just maybe smell a little bit like scripture. Yeah. And it's so easy to take advantage of stuff like that. Just twist any verse to just say whatever you want it to. That's why we got to be so careful about our sources of telling us what to do, you know, how to do it, like, and then actually look into it ourselves and ask questions. Yeah. And 
the one thing to like uh, bring people being image bearers. Excellent point uh, too, because like I mean, if Norman Bates were a real living person, mm-hmm. he too is an image bearer in that sense. So well, one of the things early on in the film, like we get his release from uh, psychiatric care, is him like that sense of no, he should still he should still be be in there. And Lily, uh, me no, what was her name again? I should know this. I said her name earlier. Uh, Lila uh, is like, hey, he should still be in there. Justice is not being done. The court only cares about the criminals. Like, how do we how do we feel about how the the film handles like the criminal justice system and rehabilitation? I think we've got time for this one last question. Uh, that was probably the most unbelievable aspect of the entire thing, especially in the 80s. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You're not wrong. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So I think this was a very idealized version of how the justice system handles mental mental illness, especially for its time period. I think if this were the case, and I think, uh, and I think at that same note, um, the picture of small town America that they're painting with this diner giving people a you know they, giving them a second chance of hiring him and and then the sheriff that wants to see him better who's just looking out for his best interest and and the court uh, official that is just looking out for his own like this is all painting the picture of the inevitable downfall of Norman Bates and setting up this support system but if we actually saw the things taking place in the real world and i'm not saying they never do i'm not trying to be doom and gloom in that way but having each one of these aspects all together simultaneously it would be great if we saw this as a normative thing unfortunately it's not Uh unfortunately we still have a lot of the conversation to go as far as mental illness and still treating people like their people and all of that kind of stuff. But you had brought up that whole aspect of forgive and forget, but even like that, yes, that's baked in there, but the larger context of that is this business, this small town diner that's just trying to give a guy who's trying to return back to polite society a second chance. And and that, I think, is a really good like that is a positive thing, even if there are problematic beats in the midst of the whole thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, You brought some really good points there. It's this is the idealized version of what should happen to someone who's actually been rehabilitated within the system that like they've actually been looking out for him. They didn't just throw a bunch of medicine at him and. You know, maybe give them a session once a week or something like that. No, this seems like they've actually been doing their job. Norman has actually been getting better. And to the point where when parole comes up, he is given the chance to get out. And in this situation, rightly so. However, yeah, that doesn't happen in real life as much as we would like it to. And he's got a bunch of people that, that support group we brought. Like everyone, not everyone, a lot of people are working to make sure he keeps that like he's got a stable job at the very beginning uh he's got someone willing to take him in knowing what he's done right uh you've got dr raymond who is basically dr bro for this entire movie like looking after his one and only patient it looks like 
and making sure that things are going well for him and uh, ends up dying and <laughs> scaring poor Mary uh, when he should have just said, hey, I'm here. And other than that, that's like his only flaw in the movie. And like this is idealized, but it, at a certain point you should bring up what an idea of something should be so you know what to strive towards. Like we, when it comes to perfection, like we're never going to be perfect in this world. Right. But I still fight to be perfect every day to be more like God, not so I can look better to other men, but so I can be more like him. So that's something we, we fail every single day. I fail on the hour, it feels like, maybe even more than that if I'm at a really bad day. But it's still something to strive towards. And I'm glad the film brought it up, especially, as you mentioned, in the time it's been filmed in. Yeah. When uh, especially uh, I think it was uh, one of the things Reagan administration did was to cut down a lot of funding for uh, mental hospitals and insane asylums and stuff like that. And uh, uh, ignore the politics part of that. Like, that's bad. And you can't just having people not be treated for something that they most of the time can't control. Right. So they that's what we're left out there. There was a, a, a seemingly throwaway line that was was used in the movie for the context of um, understanding why there wasn't like a social worker that was that was caring for uh, Norman and like a direct support person. Um, but the doctor says, I wish there hadn't been so many cutbacks. That was a comment on what had happened in the real world about cutbacks to mental health programs and all of that kind of stuff. And before the the reality is systematically, when when talking about a movie like this that does center around somebody who struggles with mental health, that does center around somebody who is released from mental health care, um, that's centered around these different topics and things like that. This is one of those that extends beyond commenting on um, one political aspect or another political aspect because systematically – Every single side of the conversation has failed epically when trying to navigate what what to do with folks that need to be taken out of regular society and and all of that and 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 how to treat somebody who suffers from mental illness and all of that kind of stuff and there's there's a lot to looking back through the history books of what mental health facilities looked like over over the years and the the realities of some just the, the the funding being cut and them just being put out on the street and all of that kind of stuff like there's there's a lot to that that is a human thing not a political thing yeah i'd love to talk more but we are kind of short for time like we didn't even get to the part where like norman is based on ed gein or yeah. how this is very different from the original novels uh, written by robert block but you know what that's how it is we could easily talk about this more. If you want us to talk about other stuff like this, let us know. Uh, but Joe, uh, out of 10, how do you rate this movie? Uh, easily a nine. Okay, that's fair. I'm about, the, I'm about a nine, nine, five, depending on how I feel right now. Like uh, after last night, I'm probably more nine, five, but in that area. Yeah. All right. Last question. Uh, very broad question. So I can answer this first because I know my answer since I've had time to prepare. Uh, what is your favorite sequel of all time 
And I will let you know, my easy answer is also my favorite film of all time. I'm still a child. It's Return of the Jedi. It makes me feel good. It makes me feel hope. It makes me love Star Wars. Return of the Jedi. How about you? Oh, that's that is very, very difficult. Um, I a very broad question. It is a very broad question. Um, I would have to go with. Um, huh, I think I would have to go with possibly possibly this one. OK, but yeah, I mean, if we're t- if we're talking outside of just the realms of horror, then I may have to go with Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Mm-hmm. Fantastic film. Yeah. All right. Listeners, what about your favorite sequel? Let us know in the comments uh, for uh, Discord or wherever you happen to be at. We enjoy having you here, learning about what you guys like and what you guys want to cover next time. Uh, This, like I said, is our final drive-in for October. We'll be back in December. We'll be doing animated Christmas movies. Really looking forward to that one. But remember, we are all a chosen people, a geekdom of priests. This was an Anazao Ministries podcast. If you enjoyed this show and would like to learn more about our network, be sure to check out the Anazao Ministries podcast network.